It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter and guitarist Jonathan Butler, performing in the Chrome Showroom at Santa Fe Station this Sunday, September 25th at 8 p.m. For ticket information, go to stationcasinoslive.com. And for everything about Jonathan Butler, go to jonathanbutler.com. And you can hear him on Spotify and Apple Music. And you can follow him on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be on your show. Absolutely. Thank you, Jonathan. So where did you get your sense of humor from, your mother or your father, or both? Uh, you know, well, my sense of humor comes from my family. We all, growing up, we were extremely poor. So laughter was one of the, the greatest medicines that we had. And, and it's still to this day, I, I think we still laugh a lot about a lot of things. And my family, that's how we entertained. You know, there was no TV when I grew up. There was a uh, there was a gramophone radio, uh, record player that worked with a battery. And most of the times, uh, my family, we knew how to make, make fun of each other, laugh about stuff, and that's how we got through life. Humor was the currency of the family. Humor was the currency of the Butler family, and yeah. still is. And there's 12 of you, right? There was 12 of us. Okay. There was 12. We are now six. I have three brothers and three sisters. The oldest is 80, and the wow. youngest, which is me, I'm, si si I'm 60. I'm ah, a young-looking 60, yeah. though. I was just Man. thinking, <laughs> if, if your family had, instead of 12, you could have had one more and had a baker's dozen. I know. So <laughs> well, you know, I guess I was the last one that, uh, that came into this world, and a story has it that when I was, the night when my mother was delivering me, she... She was struggling quite a bit, and the midwife, who, thank God, is still alive, I see her every year. Uh, you know, usually because of, the, because of the pandemic, I haven't been able to go, but every time I'm in Cape Town, I visit her because she breastfed me and she delivered me, you know, she helped my mom, and so she was my mom's close friend. And so I was the last of the litter, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Were you the only one that got into music? And we'll talk about that in a moment, how at a no, really early age. Were you no, I'm the not family? the only one that got into music. As a matter of fact, I, I grew up in a musical family, and we were all musicians. We are all musicians. Even the grandchildren are musicians, nice. and the great-grandkids are musicians. So the butlers are known in South Africa, especially Cape Town. We are known as, you know, the, the butler musical family. So my brother still sings, my sisters, my nephews and nieces, everybody. My mother was a singer and piano player. And my father was a banjo and guitarist and singer. So I got it from all of them. I got, you know, I got this love for music from my parents. Absolutely. Have your brothers and sisters had a chance to see you perform professionally in the United States or just in South Africa? or Only in, in South world? Africa. Only in South Africa, not, not in the United States, no. I'm the only one of my family that left South Africa to pursue my international career. 
That took a lot of guts, didn't it? Well, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I was given an opportunity and I had to decide that South Africa was in the 70s and late 70s, in the very beginning, early 80s, the struggle was quite intense. It had intensified so greatly that in the midst of the struggles and the uprising and and rioting, um, you know, we were still sort of playing, you know, and, and, and I was sort of campaigning with the one of the, one of our political leaders whose name is Alan Busak. And so, um, so, you know, we were campaigning with him. And then when the opportunity came for me, this contract, I used to do demos at my friend's studios in, the, in Cape Town, downtown. And I made all these demos. I played all the instruments. And, and uh, yeah, I, got a, I, I sent it, my manager at the time, sent the stuff out to London, Jive Records, London. And they, they said, yes, they wanted to give me a, an opportunity to see if I liked, if I would like to be in London, um, if it didn't work out. So my contract was actually not a solid contract. It was almost like, let's see how he does before we, you know, take him, take him a step further. So basically I said, yes, I, I talked to quite a few people that I trusted, you know, one, one of them is my late pastor. And, and he said, you know, God gave you an opportunity. God has given you an opportunity and uh, go. So I went to England and I actually began to develop my songwriting skills. I did a lot of songwriting with co-writing with other people in London. That's what the label wanted me kind of more to do was do a lot of songwriting. So I collaborated with a lot of people, Billy Ocean. Um, and of course, my writing partner was Charlie Skinner, a guy that's from the States, but lives in England. And we wrote a lot of music and um, we ended up writing so much that I had, I had a record that a double album that the record company finally said, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to take this seriously and, you know, sign me. And uh, I made my first album was introducing Jonathan Butler, which was a more instrumental, you know. And the second one was Jonathan Butler self-titled. And that was the double album that kind of really blew up and, you know, really blew up here in the, in the United States. Yeah. You were so young. I watched a YouTube video of you performing the other day. Well, it wasn't even a YouTube video of you performing. It was a YouTube of one of your records. So it had the picture yeah. of the 45. And, yeah. <laughs> and it was, and I found myself reacting to it, which I don't always do with music, but it just, yeah. it just, it had what it had. And yeah. it was the first time I heard it. And, uh -huh. and you were so young, but it didn't matter. It was just very emotional. Yes, 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 yes. So, I, I well, I, you know, I am an emotional guy. So everything that comes out on stage, I think it's even more revealing on stage, you know, because um, I, I, I want to take people on a journey when I'm performing. I want people to experience what it's like, you know, maybe they can get a glimpse and look into South Africa through my, my music and through my storytelling. And somehow I have managed over the years to woven the stories into the music. So you're really experiencing more than just the song, more than just the guitar playing. You know, it's a little bit, it's, it's everything to me. I think it comes from the growing up as a young performer. I learned performing more before I became a recording artist. So 
to the stage was more like my comfort place. You know, you were, I think at age seven was your first time on stage. Yes. I was seven years old when I first performed. Yes. My and mother, my mother, uh, dad, my mom and dad had um, variety shows, family variety shows in the, in the, in the community civic halls where they used to have a lot of shows and functions and stuff. And that's where I really got my first taste and start was for uh, singing for my mom and dad and uh, in, in the community. And I went on to sing for Malay choirs, you know, competing. Uh, and then I started competing in carnival and I won a lot of trophies. <laughs> I just won. I can't, I don't know where those trophies are anymore. It's <laughs> so crazy. I wish I had them still, but I mean, I won a lot of trophies. Yeah. Not sports trophies, but performing trophies. So but performing yeah. trophies. <laughs> yes. Yes. Also too, you mentioned in an interview that when you first began performing on stage, the audiences in South Africa or in that local area would throw coins on the stage. That was the big, you know, in Africa, that's still a big thing. You know, they really like you. They will throw money on the stage. Well, I guess not anymore. They won't throw money. Well, I was going to say, have you thought about incorporating? The economy is not that great, right? <laughs> but have you thought about incorporating that in your act here I in the United should, States? I actually should say to them, listen, now when this song comes up, you know what to do. Stop throwing. Don't throw your ATM machine, your ATM cards. I can't really do that. Just throw me the cash, you know. But that was that was a that was a real epic moment because I um, I remember singing uh, Tom Jones' song Delilah, you know, and uh, I really loved Tom Jones. I actually thought he was like a black guy because he sang so soulfully, you know. So. Um, yeah, I was like really into Tom Jones, man. The, the serious level, like this guy was like everything, you know. So, um, did you ever get a chance to meet him? No, but I, I, I do believe I wrote something for him on a record that The Art of Noise produced. I think um, there's so I can't find the name of the song, and it's been so long. But yes, he was like my hero, and um, I sang the song Delilah, and when it came to the chorus. You know, my, 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 Delilah, why? You know, I fell on my knees. Something said, fall on your knees. I don't know where it came from, but I fell on my knees like James Brown, like Michael Jackson or whatever. And next thing I know, people are throwing money on the stage. And uh, I, you know, I put the mic down and I went to pick up my money. I said, <laughs> screw the song. <laughs> I'll tell you another funny story. I'll tell you another funny story. <laughs> I'll fast forward this quickly. I tell you, my brothers and my brother Paul and I had had a band with some of some friends of ours, and we were just kids. And so, what we would do, we would take the we'll take a bus into the city and go to a nightclub. Now, you know, bear in mind those days it was apartheid, it was segregation, and but we would go to the city and we would go to the a nightclub, and we would ask to speak to the manager if the manager would allow us to play a few songs. So we were allowed to play a few songs in this one particular club called Sorrento. And, uh, and a lot of foreigners used to come to this club. So after our performances, we, um, well, this particular night, a guy walks up to the stage and he, you know, I, I mean, I'm playing this big guitar. I'm like this little kid, you know, sitting down <laughs> playing this guitar. The guy comes up and he says, can you sing, um, Mother by Barbara Streisand or something, it was a, you know. So I said, yeah. We said, yeah. He said, I'll give you 50 rand. I said, man, 
I said, I ought to, well, we said, well, where's the money? You know, <laughs> the guy, the guy takes out the money. My brothers, you know, they're all like all over me trying to get this money from me. And then what we did after the show, we would take like an ice bucket, like, you know, and then collect on, at, at every table. We would collect and we would collect like yen, you know, French, you know, all pounds. And then at the end of the night, they would kind of tally it up for us, you know, and we would split the money and then we would go buy something to eat and then we'd take the bus back home, you know, so. That's a great idea because the club didn't have to pay you, but you made your money from the audience. You made your money just taking your, your little, you know, offering buckets like a pastor. And then, of course, the song became popular, Come Back to Sorrento. I know. I mean, you know, it's like... uh I, I always, when I'm in Cape Town, I always go to that down that street to see if the club is still there. Right. I, it was it was fun memories playing with my brother. Yeah. yeah. You you mentioned about apartheid, and I wonder. You know, we talked about your sense of humor, but just the fact that you are able to transcend what you dealt with, you and your family dealt with. Well, not just you and your family, but a lot of people dealt with. Yeah. And to be able to maintain that sense of humor and prosper musically as well as spiritually that yes. not everybody can do that i understand i understand i mean my story is 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 like you know growing up poor and went to kindergarten that's it you know and from the kindergarten went on stage when traveling you know amazing and, and i didn't realize that that was Beyond kindergarten, there was no formal schooling. No, 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 no formal schooling. I had no musical musical training. I was self-taught, you know. I always I, I always used the phrase, I stole with my eyes and I stole with my ears. That's how I learned to play music. And, and of course, music was in my family and it's in my right, blood. But right. since I started so young, you know, I went from kindergarten straight to stage and, and – um, so, you know, those early days were, were frightening days of, and, and, and lonely days of, and, and scary days because I wasn't traveling with any, I mean, I had a brother that was on the road, but he wasn't exactly my guardian, you know. So I kind of, I had to sort of depend on other people to, there was one lady in particular that I will never forget for, for the rest of my life, forever. Her name was Vivian, Auntie Vivian Kensley. And she was South Africa's own, like, um, Shirley Bassey, you know. But she was the one who taught me English, etiquette, how to eat, not slurp. And so, I mean, there were so many people that kind of came around that were sort of older brothers and older sisters. And, you know, but I, I, it was a lonely time. And, uh, but, and the only time that mattered to me was when I was singing. Then I was at my happiest is when I was singing, seeing people, seeing all the joy come from people, you know. I think and that's that very really, typical. I think that's very typical of a lot of performers that yeah. being on the road as an adult, let alone in your case as a child, but yeah. being on the road is the hard part, the traveling, the putting up with the nonsense, but on stage is where it's pure. Yeah, that's honestly, it, it's still the one place that I find is my safe spot because yeah. I know on stage nobody can hurt me, nobody can you know, touch me or, or you know, um, even though my journey through that, that those, those days was pretty rough, was pretty rough. And we toured rough too. It was like the touring were, was incredibly, you know, we, we would be traveling in not like these luxury 
buses that they have today. I mean, we traveled in convoy and we slept in theaters, we slept in stadiums, we we slept in people's homes. You know, it was sort of, it was like, I, I used the phrase, I was born in Cape Town, but I was raised in South Africa, you know. Understood. I always sort of use that phrase when people say, where are you from? I said, well, I'm from Cape Town. But I'll say, then I'll say, but I was raised everywhere else. <laughs> exactly, <know>? exactly. <laughs> Were you influenced by any other performers growing up? I'm thinking of, in particular, Miriam Makiba as an influence. Oh, yeah. Well, I tell you what, I was very young, and so I didn't really know Miriam until I was older, and, and Yuma Sikela, and, and, and Abdul Ibrahim, Kaifis, and uh, Neta Mbula, Kaifis Semenya, you know. I heard of these names. But I was influenced by all of these people like Auntie Vivian Kenzie. She was like an amazing performer. My brother was an amazing performer. Uh, his name's Danny, you know, and my sister Sandra, was, they were incredible. So I had all these people that like some of South Africa's top jazz musicians were like, you know, I, they were all, I was surrounded by these people and sort of their, I was also sort of sneaking into their conversations about politics and and, you know, the, the issues of the day. And I would learn. I would learn from all of those conversations and watching them. Because, you know, we didn't have TV. South Africa, television was introduced in the 70s, mid-70s. Amazing. Uh, in 74. And I was like the first black kid on TV, <laughs> winning a Grammy, winning my first <laughs> Grammy. So, you know, and then the TV would just go, it would just turn off at 12 o'clock at night. The right. TV turned off. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, she, you just see yellow. You see these red stripes. That's all you see. You know. <laughs> there. What was it called? The the South African equivalent to a Grammy. What the term is? That? It's called a sorry, sorry, award. okay, sorry award. You know. Right. Yes. That's um, that's great. I like to call it a Grammy because it was a Grammy. Oh yes, for absolutely the, in that context. I, I feel yeah. like it's like the one, one of the. It's probably one of my most precious things that I have in my home because it's a, it's a, it was a time of great struggle and, 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 and segregation and, 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 to, and so to win a sorry award as a black kid in that room that is nominated only for white artists was quite an amazing moment, you know? And so it was sort of something that really kind of stuck with me because I remember winning after I'd won, I left the building and when I left the building, there was a bunch of white kids running, walking behind me or and then alongside me. And I could hear them whispering, you know, here's this, you know, derogatory term kid who won the Grammy. So it kind of stuck with me. You know, Here I am. I'm winning this Grammy and I'm going back to Cape Town the next day to the shanty house that I grew up in. So, but we were all elated. I mean, the country was elated that, you know, uh, that this happened. And there hasn't been like this, that, that kind of fame and notoriety since, you know, I couldn't walk the streets. I couldn't, I couldn't be alone. The fans would just go completely berserk. So how'd you keep your balance though in those days? Because you're still a young person and mm -hmm. here's, you have this fame. And as you said, you couldn't walk down the street and you seem to have both feet on the ground. You seem to be a very realistic person. How did you manage to navigate that? Well, you know what? It, the, 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 
the the growing up poor in, and having that fame and and gold records at the at that time for me i had no choice but to be humble and there was no you know had i had my father was my, if my father was wealthy and my mother was wealthy and we had this, this really you know every that we had everything maybe i would have been a different person but the way i grew up and it's like my fame belonged to my brothers and sisters my success belonged to them you know and i learned this very early in my in my in my life as a kid was that my first envelope wages packet that little yellow packet that said Jonathan Butler 25 rand which is probably a dollar or two dollars today but that envelope every week on a Friday I would send that to my mother my brother would have me go with him and they put a stamp on it I would sign it you know put my mom's address our house address and send it to my mother so I was I was I think humility was something that we inherited early in our in our lives as kids, and and um, because we were surrounded by people that also lived in shacks like we did, but there were also people that lived in really beautiful homes, you know, that, that that we were surrounded by. So during my fame, I learned a lot of things. I learned that you know, when people realized that I lived in the shack, they didn't really want to visit the shack, and so. That really was something that impacted me very early. And then I safeguarded myself. I protected myself from that. So I know exactly who I am, where I am, right. who I'm speaking to, what the room feels like. And if I can, you know, yeah. Yeah, you were, it's a case of being on both sides of the tracks and knowing yeah. pretty much, not, not to mix metaphors, but you also knew what side of the bread your butter was on. Too, because yeah. it was your talent that took you through all that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, you're right. You know, I knew that, you know, even promoters, when they used to come to our home to, you know, to ask us to do a show, they would honk their horn at the gate and they wouldn't come in. And I remember I was very young, but, but, I, but I wasn't arrogant. I was just young and 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 perhaps a little bit frustrated that you would honk your horn at my gate and then you would ask me to come to you to ask me to do a show for you when you can't come in and ask my parents, you know, who's inside. So a lot of those things, those little things began to really affect my, uh, made me really sensitive. Let's put it that way. Made me super sensitive about how I want to be treated and how people should treat you know, should be treated. Yeah. Uh, that's an experience. I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the song I referenced earlier that I listened to on yeah. YouTube. I love how you love me. That was your <laughs> virtual. I, and, and you're really young, but it just had a certain, a certain tone to it. Yeah. I think, I think, um, I think um, I'm sitting right. Uh, I'm sitting, sitting right next to the gold record. I think I love a how you love me is on against this wall over here. Um, yeah, that was, um, you know, that was so interesting time. You know, I mean, I've, I've, when I heard myself on the radio for the first time, I mean, I couldn't believe it that it was me. <laughs> I was, I was like deeply like, 
man, I was I was out of my skin. I just really got so excited to hear my and then to hear myself on the radio every day. It was like, oh my word, you know. <laughs> it's like so it 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 was more than a dream come true because my father used to play music, you know, um, every night, you know, and we would listen to Tom Jones and we would listen to radio and and I always used to wish one day, you know, that I could be on radio what and, and sing, and, you know. And you are. <laughs> if if I asked you to define what music you think you are identified with, I'm phrasing it purposely that way, what would that be? Because some people say, well, they they have all, there's different genres of music, but right. I, don't, I don't think that you can be defined in one genre of music, but people try to. So from your point of view, what do you think your brand, quote unquote, I, I, is? You know, to be honest with you, I feel like I'm a world music artist. As I'm a world music guitar player. I'm not... I, I play jazz. I play, but I, you know, I, I think I want to be accepted, let's put it that way, as a world artist, because that's really the core of who I am. And um, that's my go-to. That's, that's my wheelhouse. That's how I feel the most comfortable against all of what is out there. Because, you know, again, it's like I never... I never invented this word smooth jazz. I mean, it seemed that just came out when I, somebody just, you know, I, I, I always like to say it this way. I woke up one day and somebody called me a smooth jazz artist. I mean, <laughs> somebody just decided that they're going to call me a smooth jazz artist. You know what I mean? It's like, right. I don't know. You know, I don't know how that happened. You know? <laughs> That's, I guess, my point is that people try to define you and it's better for you to define yourself. And you just did, which is a yes. world artist, a world music yes. artist. And that makes perfect sense to me. Yes. So this journey you take the audience on, is it different each time? In other words, if you perform and you have, obviously, over the years, does the journey, does the story about the journey get added on to the performance? I'm not sure if I'm. I, I think it, right. it it grows, it grows, and it gets into deeper places because I, I for an example, I I performed in Norfolk, Virginia last weekend, and I remembered like I I suddenly remembered a a, a moment, a moment with my mother, and uh, I was actually playing song for Elizabeth before I was going to play song for Elizabeth. I remembered a moment with my mother before she passed. You know, and I took my mother to uh, to a mall to have lunch with her and to buy her some clothing because it was she 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 had she had developed dementia. So I myself and my sister, we you know I picked up my mother and took her to the mall and stuff, and I remembered certain things. So while I was telling the story about us being twelve children, my mother had twelve kids. I then remembered this in this moment that I had with her before she passed. And so, like I said, the story, it, it, it develops, it develops, it develops at every, at every turn because um, every time I play, it's never the same. I mean, I, the way I feel every day is never the same. So the music is going to be different every time. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Grammy-nominated and Sorry Award winner, Jonathan Butler, performing in the Chrome Showroom at Santa Fe Station this Sunday, September 25th at 8 p.m. For ticket information, go to stationcasinoslive.com 
and for everything about Jonathan Butler, go to jonathanbutler.com and you can hear him on Spotify and Apple Music and follow him on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And Jonathan, thanks for being on the show. Hey, man, it's great to talk to you. Very good to talk to you. See you down there. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah.